Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on one another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you were storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. This is the word of the Lord. a little bit strange. Do we have another one? No. Okay, sorry. I thought I was making a mistake here. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, we, we are staying in Joshua uh, this morning, um, and we're going to read that text as well. So it's a little bit of a long text, so my apologies that we're making you stand a little extra time. Uh, if it's a problem, you can sit. It's okay. So we're going to be in Joshua chapter... Eight, and it says this. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear and do not be dismayed. Take all the fighting men with you and arise. Go up to Ai. See, I have given into your hand the king of Ai and his people and his city and his land. And you shall do to Ai and its king as you did to Jericho and its king. Only its spoil and its livestock you shall take as plunder for yourselves. Lay an ambush against the city behind it. So Joshua and all the fighting men rose to go up to Ai, and Joshua chose 30,000 mighty men of valor and sent them out by night. And he commanded them, Behold, you shall lie in ambush against the city behind it. Do not go very far from the city, but all of you remain ready. And I and all the people who are with me will approach the city, and when they come out against us just as before, we shall flee before them, and they will come out after us until we have drawn them away until we have drawn them away from the city. For they will say, they are fleeing from us just as before. So we will flee before them. Then you shall rise up from the ambush and seize the city. For the Lord your God will give it into your hand. And as soon as you have taken the city, you shall set the city on fire. You shall do according to the word of the Lord. See, I have commanded you. So Joshua sent them out. And they went to the place of ambush and lay between Bethel and Ai, to the west of Ai. But Joshua spent the night among the people. Joshua rose early in the morning and mustered the people and went up, he and the elders of Israel, before the people of Ai. And all the fighting men who were with him went up and drew near before the city and encamped on the north side of Ai with a ravine between them and Ai. He took about 5,000 men and set them in ambush between Bethel and Ai to the west of the city. So they stationed the forces, the main encampment that was north of the city and its rear guard west of the city. But Joshua spent that night in the valley and as soon as the king of Ai saw this, he and all his people, the men of the city, hurried and went out early to the appointed place toward the Arabah to meet Israel in battle. 
But he did not know that there was an ambush against him behind the city. And Joshua and all Israel pretended to be beaten before them and fled in the direction of the wilderness. So all the people who were in the city were called together to pursue them. And as they pursued Joshua, they were drawn away from the city. Not a man was left in Ai or Bethel who did not go out after Israel. They left the city open and pursued Israel. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Stretch out the javelin that is in your hand toward Ai, and I will give it into your hand. And Joshua stretched out the javelin that was in his hand toward the city. And the men in the ambush rose quickly out of their place, and as soon as he had stretched out his hand, they ran and entered the city and captured it. And they hurried to set the city on fire. So when the men of Ai looked back, behold, the smoke of the city went up to heaven, and they had no power to flee this way or that, for the people who fled to the wilderness turned back against the pursuers. And when Joshua and Israel saw that the ambush had captured the city and that the smoke of the city went up, then they turned back and struck down the men of Ai. And the others came out, after, and others came out from the city against them, so they were in the midst of Israel, some on this side and some on that side. And Israel struck them down until there was left none that survived or escaped. But the king of Ai they took alive and brought him near to Joshua. When Israel had finished killing all the inhabitants of Ai in the open wilderness where they pursued them, and all of them to the very last had fallen by the edge of the sword, all Israel returned to Ai and struck it down with the edge of the sword. And all who fell that day, both men and women, were 12,000, all of the people of Ai. But Joshua did not draw back his hand with which he stretched out the javelin until he had devoted all the inhabitants of Ai to destruction. Only the livestock and the spoil of that city Israel took as their plunder, according to the word of the Lord that he commanded Joshua. So Joshua burned Ai and made it forever a heap of ruins as it is to this day, and he hanged the king of Ai on a tree until evening. And at sunset Joshua commanded, and they took his body down from the tree and threw it at the entrance of the gate of the city and raised over it a great heap of stones, which stands there to this day. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and for what it teaches us here. We pray for your blessing on us now as we consider this passage. And pray that you would be pleased to teach us how we are to obey it and how we are to understand more of who our Savior is because of it. And we pray this in the name of our Savior Jesus. Amen. You can be seated. It's been, uh, excuse me, it's been a little bit since uh, I've been up here. So it's a real treat to get to bring the word of God to you again. We've spent the last two weeks, if you recall, in Joshua chapter 7. Uh, we were looking at the sin of Achan. And we saw last week that Achan and his sin were buried under a heap of stones. And in the text we just read, Israel rose up after that burial in chapter 7. And they take the city of Ai and its king and they pile upon him a heap of stones. So in chapter 7, Israel sins, that sin is dealt with. And in chapter 8, Israel begins again. We'll see this more clearly, actually, next week when we talk about renewing the covenant at the end of Joshua chapter 8. But we're going to take some steps along the way, and hopefully we'll see how God responds when his people break covenant, and how he restores them, and even takes them out of the heap they were in, and ends up placing their enemies in a heap. I might go without saying that covenants are a big deal. And breaking a covenant is a big deal. But what is a covenant? It's not a word that we actually use very often. A covenant is a solemn bond, sovereignly administered, 
with attendant blessings and curses. A solemn bond, sovereignly administered with attendant blessings and curses. So when two people get married, they make promises to each other, right? Promises before God to love and cherish one another in sickness and in health and so forth until death do them part. It's a big deal. That's a covenant. It's obviously then a big deal when someone breaks that promise. And in chapter 7, Israel had done just that. They broke covenant with the Lord. And so what we're going to do, I want to give a uh, brief uh, overview of the text that we read, and then we're going to look back at chapter 7 for some context and make some comparisons. So briefly, um, in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 8, the Lord comes to Joshua. Joshua is given new instructions. He's told it's time get up, go up to Ai, I've given it to you. He even gives him a strategy. He tells him to set an ambush. And then in verses 3 through 23, we get the carrying out of the ambush. Joshua sends 30,000 fighters around behind the city of Ai, while he and his group go in front of the city. And there's some confusion about this. If you read carefully, you'll notice two different numbers. Uh, In verse 3, it says 30,000 men. In verse 12, it says 5,000 men. And the truth is, we don't know why. Um, Some people think it's two ambushes, but truth is, we actually just don't know. Um, But what we do know is there's a large force. There's a large force sent by Joshua to uh, camp between Bethel and Ai to wait in ambush. They're they're waiting in secret, while Joshua and his men uh, were not being secretive. They were out in the valley, says verse 13. They wanted to be seen so that when the king of Ai and his force saw them, they would go out to attack. And at that point, Joshua and his troop would turn and flee as though they were beaten just like they did before. And the king of Ai would decide, ha-ha, they're running away, so now I'm going to send all of my forces out after them. We're going we're gonna to get them this time. We're not going to let them get away. We're going to crush them. And it was when that happened that the ambush took place. So once all of the men left the city, that's when those 5,000 or 30,000 or however many rush in, set the city on fire. And then once the city is ablaze, they come out of the city to go join Israel on the field of battle. So you had Israel, forces of Ai, and Israel again. So they end up getting sandwiched between them, which is not a pleasant place to be. Uh, It's a pretty hopeless place. And then... In verses 24 to 29, we kind of see what happens in the end. Uh, They kill everyone, as God told them to. They plunder the city. They capture the king, hang him on a tree until the evening, and then they take him down and raise up a heap of stones over him. It's quite a picture. Now, on the surface, it might look like this was just a reversal of the previous chapter. Oh, they messed up here, but they did right here. Okay, that was a bad one. This is a good one. That was a loss. This is a win. But it's more than that. And we need to look back at chapter 7 a little bit to appreciate the difference. The first thing that we need to see back in chapter 7 is even though the chapter highlights Achan's sin, we need to see that Achan was not the only sinner. If you look back at verse 10 and 11 of chapter 7, we find something very different. Israel flees from the battle at Ai, and Joshua goes before the Lord to ask, Why? What happened, Lord? 
He's acting very pious. He's down on his face. And in verse 10, the Lord says to Joshua, get up. Why are you down on your face? This is not the same kind of rise up like he's about to say, rise up, go to Ai. No, no, this is a get up off your face. I'm not impressed with your prayer. And what does he tell him? He says, Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant. God's not impressed with Joshua's prayer because Joshua and the people were guilty. God then highlights Achan's sin, but remember, he says, they have transgressed my covenant. The whole company is guilty. So what's going on here? Some might think that Achan is kind of like Adam. He sinned, he's part of Israel, therefore all Israel as a whole is guilty. But is that what we should think? If you sin, does that make your church guilty? You're part of the church. Does that mean the church is guilty? No. No, your sin may be a picture of the broader state of the church, but you don't represent every member of the church. So therefore, not every member is guilty because you sin. And I think this is kind of what's happening here in in Joshua chapter 7. I think Achan's sin was a picture of something that was going on that was deeper in the people. Israel, if you remember, had just destroyed Jericho. Joshua, uh, after the destruction of Jericho, sent spies to check out Ai. He says, go up, spy out the land. It's very interesting when we get little clues like that, because we've heard that kind of language before. Go up, spy out the land. When, when things repeat, it should perk our ears up. We need to pay attention. What's happening? They, they come back, and what do the spies say? Do they say, let us rise and go up, for if God is with us, he will give this people into our hands. Do they say that? No. No, actually, the spies come back and they say, don't go up. Just send a few, just, just a few people. This may sound courageous to you, right? Oh, we don't need the whole people, right? If God is with us, we can take this small city of Ai by a small force. We'll be the pre-Gideon story. But notice something very important. We know that that's not the case because God is actually not addressed in the battle plans in chapter 7. They don't seek the Lord. They don't go to the ark and ask him, what should we do? Interestingly, the name Ai, uh, it actually means heap of ruins. So this city was a heap. Nothing impressive. Joshua sent men to spy out the heap, and they came back saying, hey guys, I think we got this one. I think we have this one covered. Just give me a small force. We'll take care of it. We'll clear the heap. But is that how God works? I would tell you Israel here became presumptuous and complacent. They emerged victorious from Jericho and quickly forgot who they were. They thought they had it all covered on their own. This isn't difficult for us to figure out. We do this too, don't we? The Lord perhaps blesses us in some way, pours out some great act of kindness on us. And it isn't long before we start wondering, where's the next one? Maybe you got a bonus at work. 
and you got to spend it on something that you were really excited about, something you really wanted, it will not be long before you start wondering, am I going to get another one? Is it going to be for more? What can I do with it? And in this way, all Israel sinned. Even Joshua, their leader, who for all we can tell from chapter 7, he didn't go up to Ai. He stayed behind. They acted presumptuously and they paid for it. When Moses sent spies, they came back saying, don't go up. Don't go up. We can't do this. Now Joshua sends spies and they come back saying, don't go up. We've got it covered. God is opposed to unholy fear. But he insists that we have a holy fear. The men of Israel under Moses had an unholy fear of the Canaanites. The men of Israel under Joshua came to have an unholy confidence. They did not have a holy fear before rushing into battle against Ai, and the men of the heap sent them fleeing. And if you recall, it's not like God hadn't been reminding them all along the way. God had been setting up markers, monuments to remind his people that he was with them and that they could trust him. Israel saw God deliver them from the wilderness and bring them through the Jordan. And when they came through the Jordan in chapter 4, what did they do? They set up a heap of stones, stones to remember what God had done. And then in chapter 5, we get another heap. Uh, This one's a little different. It's a heap of skins. Uh, If you recall, uh, it's Gibeoth Haleroth. If you don't remember that, you can look it up later. Uh, It's unusual, but nonetheless, it was a heap of covenant signs. Then in chapter 6, Jericho is turned into a heap. And in chapter 7, Ai, which is called the heap, right? It's supposed to get destroyed, and yet it ends up winning the first battle, and Israel winds up being the one in the heap. Israel had seen God form heap after heap after heap, sign after sign of his covenant faithfulness. But as they came to the city called heap, they forgot who they were and they were sent fleeing. And it was typified by the sin of Achan. Achan was the picture. Achan saw some silver, a gold bar, and a beautiful cloak. Achan was not like a new Adam in Israel. He was actually like a new Eve. He saw something. It was good. It was pleasant to his eyes, and he took it. And the result was destruction. And so God instructed his people at that point, it's time to make another heap. And they heaped stones onto Achan and all of his house and all of his possessions. And so then we come to chapter 8. And we need to notice some key differences. Verse 1 is a huge difference. The Lord said to Joshua, that didn't happen the first time. Remember, they didn't talk to God the first time. And what did God say? He said, take all the fighting men with you and arise and go up to Ai. I have given it into your hand and the king and the people and the city and the land. You shall do to it what you did to Jericho. In other words, you're going to actually turn it into a heap this time. But its spoil, its livestock, you shall take as plunder for yourselves. So this time, God says, go and do it. 
but the goods, they're not for me this time. They're for you. Achan had grabbed goods that were given to God, things devoted to destruction, and the result was Achan ended up being devoted to destruction. So in chapter 7, Israel does not go up. In chapter 8, Israel does go up. In chapter 7, God is not consulted. In chapter 8, God is consulted. Chapter 7, Israel is presumptuous in their approach to the battle. In chapter 8, Ai is presumptuous in their approach to the battle. Chapter 7, 36 Israelites are killed. Chapter 8, 12,000 from Ai are killed. Chapter 7, the king of presumption, Achan, he ends up covered in a heap of stones. In chapter 8, the new king of presumption, the king of Ai, is covered by a heap of stones. So what are we to do with all of this? I would say there are four lessons that we really need to pay attention to from this passage. Those four lessons are, number one, the danger of presumption. Number two, the fruit of patience. Number three, the blessing of repentance. And number four, the importance of covenant renewal. We're, only, we're, we're going to spend most of our time on numbers two and three, on the fruit of patience and the blessing of repentance, but we, we need to say something about all four of them. So number one, the danger of presumption. Aiken teaches us something very basic but very important. And that is that trying to take your lusts, your desires into your own hands can kill you. That's the lesson of Aiken. And we've already spent two weeks on it, so I'm not going to say a whole lot more. Aiken, like Eve, he listened to the serpent, right? Did God really say you can't just have one cloak, one gold bar? Right? Is he just being stingy? And Achan took what was forbidden, and then he and those 36 who were slain, slain learned a tough lesson. Their presumption destroyed them. And certainly, though, remember, they believed God was with them, right? They were Israel. It is dangerous to presume on God's kindness. As we read in Romans earlier, God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. Presumption is dangerous. It is destructive. Second lesson, the fruit of patience. Patience is the result of trust, and it is a spring of blessing. Patience bears fruit. Again, we read in Romans 2, Paul says, God will render to each one according to his works to those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. In Hebrews, we read this. Uh, the writer instructs uh, that the readers were to be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So if you want to inherit God's promises, how do you do it? Patience. Patiently. Patience is key. Achan wanted an inheritance. And in his impatience, he tried to steal it from God. That is not how you get an inheritance. God has to give it to you. The spoil of Jericho was for God. It wasn't that the gold was bad or that the cloak was ugly. It was all very good. 
but it was for the Lord. It had been devoted, set apart for him. Achan took what was rightfully the Lord's and kept it for himself. But if he had patiently waited, far more than a gold bar or cloak would have been offered to him. Remember, Israel was free to plunder Ai. Impatience and greed will carry you to destruction. But patience will result in a spring of blessing. The Bible tells us many times to be patient. We're told to put on patience and compassion, to bear with one another in patience. Paul wants us strengthened to be patient with joy, he says. Patient with joy, joyful patience. Those are not two words we often put together. Patience, we read, is a fruit of the Spirit. Paul praises Timothy for imitating his patience. We are also told to instruct with patience. Now, parents, let me ask you, does patient instruction, does joyful patience, does that capture how you speak to your children? Kiddos, are you joyfully patient with your siblings? So often our patience lasts only as long as it takes to scold our children. And uh, that, that patient instruction looks something like, don't do that again. But God in His patience endured for generations the sins of His people. God patiently endured the sins of generations so that He could show His kindness to you. Paul said, as we saw in Timothy, that his salvation is an example of God's perfect patience. If you think back on your past, some of the decisions you've made over the course of your life, you might wonder, why does God still put up with me? If you can think of your failures, maybe even over the past week, you might start to think, can I give any reason for why God would love me, right? And the answer is, of course not. God loves you because he is faithful to his promise and he is full of patience. Just like Achan, God remembers your sin, my sin. And on a bad week, you may start asking yourself as you get close to the weekend, should I even go to church on Sunday? How can I come and appear before God? Because He knows. He remembers everything I've done. The answer is His love is not like ours. God's love is patient. Have you ever thought that the first characteristic of love, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians, is patience? Love is patient. We explode in anger at others, most notably our kids. And by doing that, we are teaching them something about God. We are actually lying to them and saying that this is how God really is. It's full of anger, full of impatience. And what we need to see is that what God is truly like. He is a God slow to anger and full of compassion. Fathers and mothers, you may need to go home and repent to your children for teaching them lies, for teaching them that God is an impatient tyrant. Patient instruction, joyful patience. 
Those are two characteristics that by God's grace, I pray, come to one day describe my home and your home and our church. I'll say just a few more things about this and then we'll move on. Achan was impatient and he was greedy. Jericho was the first victory. It was the first victory after coming through the wilderness. And if you remember, it was the victory they said they could not achieve. Jericho was why they spent time in the wilderness. We can't go up and fight them. They're giants in the land. God brought them through the wilderness, and then he gave them the very city they said they couldn't defeat. And what did God ask from that? He wanted them to recognize that he was with them, that he gave them victory in the first battle, that they should trust and obey him and He would continue to give victory to them. Israel was to show their faith and trust in God by giving him all the spoil of Jericho. All the gold and precious things and animals, that church is what a tithe is. You give the first fruits to God. In this case, it was the first fruits of Israel's conquest. And when you do that, God blesses the faithfulness and he returns it to you. Our modern view of tithing is, um, is typically something we actually just don't talk about. Um, we, we, maybe we give to God what's left. We, uh, we just we ignore that word. We call it legalism. And we say, we, oh, we'll just give offerings, and those can be whatever we want. The reason God wants your first fruits is because it is a demonstration of faith. It reveals that you trust Him with what you have. God does not want you to be enslaved to your wealth, and so he calls you to give it to him. But you know what's really amazing? Is that's actually a secret weapon. You probably never thought of a tithe as a secret weapon, but it is. Let me explain. I've recently been reading The Lord of the Rings, and I'm getting close to done with the second book. And one of the things that uh, isn't picked up on in the movies that is really brilliant in the books, is that the plan for Frodo to destroy the ring is totally unexpected. Sauron expected anyone who found the ring would want it. They would want to use it. One ring to rule them all. He never fathomed that anyone would try to destroy it. That's why he didn't suspect that that would be their plan. Your temptation is going to be to hold fast to your money, to trust in it. When you give it to the Lord, it is like Frodo going to Mordor to destroy the ring. You're saying to the devil and to his temptation, this ring, this little precious, doesn't matter. It does not control you. And you end up becoming like a very curious character in the story. Um, Again, if you've read the book, uh, there's this... um, portion that includes Tom Bombadil. He's a very unusual character and don't really know what to make of him. Uh, He's not in the movie, but really interesting, jolly fellow, always singing. And at one point, Frodo hands him the ring and he just kind of plays with it, flicks it up in the air and then he catches it and he gives it back. It doesn't have any impact on him. I pray that God would be so pleased to make us like Tom Bombadil with our temptations things that just have no impact on us at all. Eve gave up everything for a piece of fruit when God had promised her the world. Achan gave up everything for a cloak when God had 
been ready to give him a city. The fruit of patience isn't just that you become a patient person. It's that God loves to bless those who wait on him. Again, God's promises are received by patience. If you recall the parable of the talents, what does God do with the faithful servants? He blesses them with more. He had the servant who was faithful. He turned his five talents into ten. And when the master came back, the servant offered him the ten talents. And instead, it was the master who gave him back the ten talents and put him in charge of ten cities. The one who is faithful with little can be trusted with much. The next lesson we need to see is the blessing of forgiveness. If you look back at the end of chapter 7, it says, uh, They raised over him, Achan, a great heap of stones that remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his burning anger. Therefore, to this day, the name of that place is called the Valley of Achor. And in chapter 8, we see again, verse 1, The Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear, do not be dismayed. The sin was dealt with. It was dealt with and God immediately turned from his wrath. Now again, I wonder, do we model this in our homes? If your spouse, child, roommate sins against you and they apologize, do you immediately turn and treat it as though nothing ever happened? Everything was just as it should be. Do you do what God did? You turn from your anger and are you ready to say, don't fear, don't be dismayed? Or do you like to let the person sit and stew in their guilt for a little while? Do you want to make sure they feel how hurt you were? God has never asked us to understand the depth of his hurt when he watched his son get murdered. I think when Christ died and the curtain in the temple tore, that was the father doing what fathers do. He was tearing his cloak because he just watched his son die right after crying out to him. Praise God, he doesn't require us to know the depth of his pain. I don't think any one of us could bear it. And so it is sin for us to withhold genuine forgiveness from someone because we want them to sit in the weight and feel their sin. Forgiveness is refusing to let someone bear the weight of their sin. Forgiveness is telling them that they are free to take that weight off their shoulders because what Christ endured was more than enough for it. The blessing of forgiveness looks like God quickly turning and then leading you forward. God turned and he told Joshua, get up, rise up and go. See, I have given Ai into your hand. I've already done it. It's already yours. I've given it to you. Imagine forgiving someone and then blessing them with the gift. That's what the blessing of forgiveness looks like with God. That's what his covenant faithfulness looks like to you. Israel rose up from the heap of chapter 7 to teach us how to live in covenant with God. We are to trust him. He is patient. He will forgive you. He will bless you, church. We don't often believe that. We have a very human view of God, a very fleshy view. We think God holds grudges. Oh, I'll forgive you, you little stinker, but I'm watching you, right? I'll forgive you, but seriously, now you're going to come and ask for something from me? Figure it out yourself. But that's not the Lord. That's how we act in our flesh, and then we load that sinful tendency onto God, but He's not like that, church. 
We repent. He forgives and he quickly turns and is ready to lead us in victory. Notice the kindness of God. Even when he's angry with his people, how did Israel uh, do in the first battle? They lost, right? They lost 36. That's discipline of the Lord. That's, that's not the full weight of his wrath. We know that because in the next chapter, we read what happens to Ai. They lose 12,000. God was patient and kind even in his discipline. God wiped Ai off the map but his people he patiently taught. He led them to repent, and then he led them in conquest. And this is how he leads you too. If you genuinely repent, if you're genuinely sorry for your sin because you know you violated God's holy standard, and then you ask him to lead you and to take care of you and to bless you, he will. It's not presumptuous to go to God and say, I'm sorry, please forgive me, I've done such and such, and also will you bless me. That's not presumption, that's obedience. God does not want you to try to do it yourself. He insists on holy fear. He wants you to walk with him, to be dependent on him. That is how you magnify the grace and goodness of God. The blessing of forgiveness is God's acceptance of you, even though you failed He provided payment for you in Jesus Christ. And he promises in faithfulness and love to lead you to eternal victory. If I can make just a quick note here on eternal victory. I believe this is one of the central mistakes, heresies even, that we as Christians tend to make and that we need to go to war against. Going to heaven is good. Because God is there. But going to heaven is not the end of all things. Because you're still dead. You may experience more of what true life is supposed to be like in heaven because you're in the presence of the one who breathes life. So there's nothing disappointing about heaven, okay? Don't hear me wrong. But it's not the end of the story because your body is still in the grave. As long as you're dead you haven't experienced the fullness of victory. The wages of sin is death, and if you stay dead, you haven't beaten sin yet. In Christ, we will defeat even death. I shared this with someone recently, someone who grew up in church, and I was describing this to them, and they looked at me so puzzled, and they said, wait a minute, are you talking about reincarnation? And I said, no, Christians don't believe in reincarnation. We believe in resurrection. I will not stay dead because my Lord has defeated death. And though I will enter into death, right, he also knows the way out. And he'll lead me there too. He will lead you there too. On the other side of heaven is eternal life with a real body just like Jesus. At the last point is the importance of covenant renewal. We're going to spend the whole sermon on this next week, so I don't have to say too much, but, um, but it's important that, that you come ready for next week. And what I, I mean by that is um, every week we transgress God's covenant. And every week we come here and we confess that to Him. That's why we take time to confess our sins. And what does God do? He renews covenant with us. We come, we confess, and He forgives That's why we assure you of pardon. 
And then we respond in worship and gratitude so that we understand that God forgives us. God leads us. He teaches us from his word after that. That's what we're doing now. He teaches us how to follow him. And then he goes so far as to share a meal with us. Kings don't dine with nobodies. Kings dine with their friends and their families. God leads us by his word and he takes us every week to Jesus. And we see that in the meal. We receive Christ, who is the assurance of our acceptance with God. And by feasting, by receiving a sign of God's covenant, it's like building a heap. Like building a heap right in front of us, a heap of remembrance, right? But what is the heap of stones? It's actually the church. It's God's living stones of his temple. He, he binds us together as his covenant people. There are good heaps and bad heaps that we see in the last few chapters. This is a very good one. When I take communion, I actually, this may sound strange, I like to look around. I like to watch you. Because it reminds me that this is my body, Jesus says. It's the body of Christ, broken, and we receive it so that we are formed into a body. The importance of covenant renewal cannot be overstated. It is why we gather. We don't gather on Sunday mornings just because we like it, though I hope you do. We gather because God wants us to come together and renew our covenant once again. And then at the end... God sends us out with his blessing to bring the weight of our heavenly news to bear on the world, to see God's kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. We get a taste of heaven here, and then we bring it to bear out there. As we close, I want you to notice where Christ is in our text. Two things. One, you see it in Achan buried under a heap of stones from which God raises his people and calls them upward. But we also learn something about our Savior and the king of Ai. He's hung on a tree and cast under stones. And while neither Achan nor the king of Ai were the good guys, Christ is still not afraid to be associated with them. The king, our king, died. And all the spoil of his kingdom was handed over to us, right? We, we are the heirs of the riches of heaven. We were once not God's people. And our king died. We hung him from a tree and buried him behind a stone. And that is exactly what God used to provide us our eternal inheritance and our entrance into the promised land. I don't think I need to say more. Let's pray together. Our Father and merciful God, we praise you for your loving kindness, the kindness which you have shown to your people for generations. We thank you for sending us such a wonderful Savior who despite being in uh, the heap, buried behind a stone, was raised to give us all the treasures of heaven. And you make us into a new and glorious temple. We pray that you would take, take what we've received here and bind it to us so that we might walk in holy fear and joyful patience. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.